Top of the inning to you. Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love baseball and if you love Ireland, stay tuned for a discussion of all things Irish baseball. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. On today's show, we're going to be continuing two of the conversations from last episode. You can catch up with the first parts of these interviews by listening to episode 23 at irishbaseball.org. First, my colleague Jim Ward will pick up his conversation with Emma Tiedemann, the play-by-play broadcaster for the Portland Sea Dogs, the AA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox. Jim will trace her career from a league in Alaska all the way to Maine. He will also ask her about what it's like being one of the few women in her profession. After that, I'll once again be joined by William E. Watson, a professor at Immaculata University in suburban Philadelphia. Dr. Watson runs the Duffy's Cut Project, which discovered a mass, unmarked grave of Irish immigrant railroad workers. On today's show, he will go way more in-depth into what happened to those workers. Let's turn things over first to Jim Ward. Take it away, Jim. Our guest is Emma Tiedemann, the play-by-play voice of the Portland Sea Dogs, the AA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox, here on today's edition of the Irish Baseball Podcast, taking time out of her busy schedule. And from Alaska, your experience takes you then to the Medford Roads, where you became the broadcast and communications manager. So you, you take, you move to another city, you get to be play-by-play, but you get to take on more responsibility on the backside of things. And that must have been a great time for you to look at that education as well. Absolutely. Um, I was in a great position where at that point, I knew I wanted to work in minor league baseball and major league baseball is the ultimate goal. And so I basically told my GM that I was going to try and mirror that position with Medford to any position I would see in minor league baseball. That way, when it comes to job interviews down the line, I can say, oh, I did game notes. I did this. I did this. Handle the roster, that kind of stuff. Um, so it was awesome. Um, you know, I actually crossed paths with current Sea Dogs. Um, at the time, Rio Gomez um, pitched against us. He was with Bend, um, pitched against Medford um, in a championship game. And now, you know, Rio was with the Sea Dogs this year. So we, um, it was cool to kind of run into him again. Um, but it was great. It, it set me up really nicely for, um, you know, getting a job with St. Paul, even though the affiliate uh, job came a little bit further down the line than I expected. You mentioned uh, St. Paul, you got to work with Sean Aronson. What was it like taking a step back from being the lead play-by-play to being the, the second in a two-booth tandem? Um, it was interesting. You know, I didn't have a partner in Medford for two years, so it was a little bit different to know that I wasn't the voice anymore. I was just an assistant. Um, but with Sean, I mean, I just tried to learn as much as I could because, you know, it was obviously professional baseball. It was a little bit different because it was independent. Um, And then on top of it all, it was the Saints. And so it was so much fun going into work every day, not really knowing what to expect because, you know, you could have Bill Murray come in, you could have the ball pig, you know, come in a little bit early and play on the field. I mean, it it was just the most fun work environment. And so I really soaked it up. I mean, every day was an absolute joy uh, learning behind Sean. He was just named at that point uh, broadcaster of the year. He was a great mentor and still is. 2018 was a great year for you. You got two big jobs. You got the job with the Lexington Legends, and then you also got named uh, play-by-play voice for the Moorhead State University Women's Basketball, so you get to go back to your basketball roots a little bit. But that must have been a great year to be able to work two different teams and two different sports and two different levels, which was phenomenal. 2018 was awesome. It was a dream because working with the Royals um, as their affiliate was great. 
we ended up that with that team with like five of the top seven prospects in the Royal system. It was just great baseball. And then we went on to win a championship. Um, and that was my first ever championship call that I've ever had. And um, I didn't, I didn't travel with the team, but luckily I got to travel and um, be there when they won in Lakewood. Um, and then the Moorhead state job was just a, a cherry on top. And it, it was kind of nice because, you know, you work so much during the baseball season. It was nice with Moorhead that I was just the broadcaster. I would just show up to the arena with all my notes, sit down, do my thing, and then leave. I didn't have to do social media during the game, you know, anything like that. I didn't have to worry about the post-game recap. Um, the offseason was was really a nice way to get back to basketball and um, kind of start, you know, trying to build some roots in, in Kentucky at that point. Then you got, I believe this was your first major award in 2019, a year later, you got recognized as the South Atlantic Media Relations Director of the Year. That must have been something special to get that honor and to be a woman in broadcasting to get that honor. Yeah, it was great. Um, I actually remember the call. Our owner in Lexington gave me a call 10 minutes before first pitch. He texted me and he said, hey, I need to call you real quick, which obviously in my mind was emergency situation. Like, you know, something's wrong with the broadcast that, you know, it would be this close to a first pitch, but he supported me all the way. And, um, you know, it was awesome to be recognized for that because, you know, with media relations, it is, it's a lot of work behind the scenes just to get, you know, a two minute story on the nightly news at your local TV station and everything. And um, so it was cool to be recognized for that. And then for the broadcast as well. Um, I was really proud of the product we put together in Lexington and it, it was cool to be recognized, but um, it was definitely a, a team effort. And we're joined by Emma Tiedemann, the play-by-play voice of the Portland Sea Dogs, the AA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox here on the Irish Baseball Podcast. And Emma coming off a terrific season. How did you hear about the opening and what was it like when you got the call to say, Emma, you've got the job? Uh, well, it started, um, I think in February, a friend of mine, um, he's in the industry. He's another broadcaster, uh, texted me out of the blue and said, are you going for the Portland job? And I was taken aback because I knew that, you know, Portland's position never really opens up. I mean, Antonellis was here for a very long time. So, um, he texted me that and I was like, Oh, Portland's never open. And I checked online and lo and behold, it was posted. Um, and at that point I was looking to get out of Lexington and, and take the next step. Um, I was scared of, of getting stuck in, in single a. And so I wanted to make sure that I was still on that trajectory and, and to the ultimate goal of major league baseball. So, um, I applied, I sent my real, um, sent my resume and, and writing samples, I think, and, um, sent it along. And then Jeff Iaquesa reached out and, and we set up couple interviews and it was a lot more of a larger process than um, I expected behind the scenes because they were sending out the tape to, you know, front office and season ticket holders and stuff. And then as the Moorhead state season was winding down, they asked me to come up to Portland for an in-person interview, uh, which was at the very, very beginning of COVID. And it was just, you know, weird little things like, you know, Jeff had just flown in and I had just flown in. He's like, maybe we shouldn't shake hands just because of that thing that's going around. And then Mike Antonellis was great. We had a really good sit down, you know, broadcaster to broadcaster, because that's one position I think that is very unique. And, and it's it was great to just have an open and frank discussion with him about the broadcast and, and everything in Portland. Um, and then talked with Jeff again and he offered me the job and I technically didn't accept on the spot knowing full well that I would. I was always told that you have to play like hard to get. You're like, oh, let me take the weekend. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh my God, I got it. You know, I'm freaking out um, knowing I was going to accept it. And so then I, I think I called him the next day. I was like, I don't, I don't want to draw this out. Like, of course, I want to come to Portland. So um, it was an absolute dream. And then I moved um, officially up to Maine in March of 2020. <laughs> 
Was it even more special that you got to be part of the Red Sox organization? Did that was that the biggest cherry on the top of the of the Sunday for you that you're going to be part of one of America's most beloved baseball franchises? It was the cherry on top. It was also the most probably intimidating part of it um, because a franchise like the Red Sox have a very dedicated fan base, which is awesome. You know, I think it's really great that they're not only invested in the big league club, but all the way down the farm system as well. Um, so I was very intimidated to come in as technically an outsider. I mean, I grew up in Texas. I, I did not grow up in the Northeast. I had been to Maine, well, once for the interview. Um, so I, I was pretty intimidated by it, but after this season, I think that that should have been a huge factor in my decision for the job, because the way that the Red Sox fans have embraced the sea dogs and then the way that the Red Sox organization has treated Portland as well, um, just goes to show the fantastic relationship between the two organizations. And the one thing about your career is you're one of the original four female broadcasters in all of minor league baseball. Uh, you've done the basketball, football, soccer, softball, volleyball, you've done it all. And don't we all do them all to, to get where we go? But you're the fifth broadcaster in Sea Dogs history. And no one, like you mentioned, the job doesn't open too much. Guys like Mike Antonellis and such that have held that job for a long time. Uh, it, it's going to feel even more special that you're in a very elite club. Absolutely. You know, I, I think it's it's really cool. And it goes to show a lot about uh, the organization of the Sea Dogs to show that they set their broadcasters up for such success because look what, you know, Mike Antonellis is going on to do. He's with Worcester and, and doing a great job with them on, on both the Ness and plus side. And then also on the radio side, um, not to mention the many before uh, Mike who have gone on to the big league. So um, I think that it, it goes to show the amount of talent um, that goes into the position, but then also all the behind the scenes of vetting each candidate, making sure that they're the best person, not only for the booth, but also for, the fans who will listen for the front office who has to work full time with them. Um, it, it, it just goes to show the fantastic hiring process that they do each time. Do you look at yourself as a pioneer of sorts, knowing that there aren't that many female play-by-play -play voices in baseball? We're seeing more across the board in sport. We're seeing recognition by ESPN to have the all-female broadcast. No, I mean, I wouldn't put that labeled on myself, though I've come to kind of just take it. I mean, it's hard to say that I, I can't kind of view myself as that because, you know, I look around to other broadcast booths, I go to other ballparks and, and travel with the team and it's all male dominated still in the press box, not only just in the uh, broadcast booth, but a lot of the times I'm the only female in the press box at all, whatever positions are working up there. Um, so it's, it's hard not to kind of think, well, hopefully, you know, in a couple of years, someone else will come into this press box and, and not have this feeling and, and see other people that look like them. Um, and, and, you know, if I have a hand in that and helping people, you know, open up and, and maybe listen to female broadcasters and give me a second and be like, oh, actually, she's not half bad, you know, for being a, a female, um, you know, I, you know, that would be awesome. And um, I think it's just inevitable whenever you're trying to go down a path that not a lot of people who look like you have done before you know, words like pioneer and that kind of stuff definitely get attached to your name. That was Jim Ward talking with Emma Tiedemann, the play-by-play -play broadcaster for the Portland Sea Dogs on the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm Rick Becker welcoming back Dr. William E. Watson, professor at Immaculata University. In episode 23, the two of us started the conversation about Duffy's Cut, where a mass grave of Irish immigrant railroad workers who died during a cholera outbreak in the 19th century was found in suburban Philadelphia. That's where we'll pick up with Dr. Watson today. 
what were the conditions that led to so many of these mostly young men dying at Duffy's Cut? When these guys arrived here, they had no idea that they were coming into an environment that was remarkably similar to the one that they left in Ulster. Protestants were in charge. Catholics were marginalized. Philadelphia in the previous year of 1831 had a riot, an orange-green riot, kind of like what goes on every July 12th in Belfast. You know, it's where the Orange Order marches through Catholic neighborhoods to show their supremacy. That society existed here in Pennsylvania. You know, there were orange marches in Philadelphia up to around the turn of the 20th century. Catholics were, in the 1800s, uh, pretty much without an advocate out here in Chester County. They entered into a, an economy which would have seen them as um, undercutting the local uh, common laborers, uh, local uh, native-born workers, who would have certainly been clamoring for more than 25 cents a day, which these guys got. They would have been despised because of their religion. They would have been despised because of the fact that they most likely spoke Gaelic. In 1832, there was no one here who could have advocated for them, except the railroad who saw them as expendable. There were only 910 people total in East Whiteland Township, where Duffy's Cut is located back in 1832, 910 total, and almost none of them were Catholic, if any, uh, except for Philip Duffy and his work crew. He had actually living with him at the time, 27 people most of whom are alien non-naturalized laborers in the census living uh, near the intersection of uh, King and uh, Sugartown Road. And I pass that every day on my way out here to Immaculata from Delaware County, which is 26.4% Irish today. But the, uh, the area out here at the time was, was uh, you know, very different, very, very underpopulated uh, Catholic uh, common laborers would have been viewed with suspicion. Duffy had with him nine people who were of the right age and occupation living in that house of 27 that he was renting along with 47 men on the ship i think there's a total of 57 guys we've got there one of them would have been the source of contagion for another site down the tracks in uh, downingtown the site that we're looking at right now which also had an irish uh, track laborer crew under peter connor another irish catholic contractor in that case, the contractor also appears to have disappeared. Now, the typical uh, mile of track had about 100 to 120 guys. We know that the guys working in the valley were the Catholic recently arrived immigrants. And we wondered for a very long time, who were the other guys working up top? Last summer, when everything was shut down with Corona, I was in my basement at home in, in Springfield looking through old files, and I found all that we needed to find out about what was going on top, stuff that we printed out from the photocopying of the, um, you know, the old spool um, microfilm machines that we used to have in the library here. And, um, you know, I just stuffed it away and I didn't look at it until last summer. And by God, the guys who finished up top, the other part of that contract taken over by the McCartney brothers, Jane, Jane McCartney, John and James from um, County Down, they were Protestants. And so the guys, according to the typical hiring practices of the day, if you were Catholic, you hired Catholics. If you're a Protestant, you hired Protestants. They had Protestant track laborers working under them. They were not impacted by any of the circumstances, the deadly circumstances at Duffy's Cut. That was Duffy's men. They were the Catholic guys who'd recently arrived. So about half of the crew there, 57, who were working at the site, they're the ones who died. It's a sectarian-based mass death event. And as you were doing more and more research into this event, 
you found that cholera might not have been the only way that these young men died. Yeah, so cholera strikes Pennsylvania in the summer of 1832, roughly around the time that these guys arrived. They arrived in June in the port of Philadelphia, and then they got on a cart and were brought out here in a Conestoga wagon, probably. The cholera had made its way in um, July down to Philadelphia from New York. It eventually makes its way down here from Canada. So it started out up in, in Montreal, would have come in down to St. Lawrence on a ship from the UK, and then made its way down into Hudson, into New York, and then down into Pennsylvania in July. By August, it's all over Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania Railroad File says that the men died of cholera. It leaves the big question of how there's a 100% mortality among a single work crew, because it's supposed to be only about 50% deadly. It's supposed to have you know, at least half the, uh, the number of people who contract it surviving. And when you get a, a 100% mortality in a situation like this, there's always something else at play. And in this case, our excavations would show that, in fact, there was violence done to these men. Well, once the story of Duffy's Cut got out into um, the wider public, it, it attracted a lot of attention. The possibility of a mass grave that wasn't associated with the Revolutionary War in this part of the state, something to do with the Industrial Revolution, something to do with Irish history, something to do with the railroad. Um, we had a lot of people come on board who were able to help us in some important ways that otherwise we, we couldn't have undertaken. I got my graduate degrees at the University of Pennsylvania and through a professor named Drew McGee, we got a, um, a ground-penetrating radar specialist who was a geologist named Dr. Tim Bechtel, who was teaching at that time at the University of Pennsylvania and wasn't just a, a radar specialist, but a geologist, someone who was able to read the soil. And if we're looking for a mass grave, he said, we need to find a stopping void. The, a stopping void is something in the ground where there was something solid and it collapses through de decomposition to something just on the very bottom, leaving an uneven layer of soil above it. It's kind of like the way that sonar finds a submarine or something, you know, in, in other contexts. And he had found um, skeletons from as far back in, in graves, as far back as the French and Indian War, 1750s. So he was our guy. And it took just a little while in uh, 2008. And by the end of that year, had a uh, an image for us that he put into a 3D map in March of, of uh, 2009, and by God, it was it. It was, it was the first of, of seven skeletons that we were able to, to excavate. Once we found the first skeleton, all kinds of other things happened. And by the way, the only way we could do the excavation properly, Tim Bechtel got us the services of the University of Pennsylvania Museum, the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology, Janet Monge, a very important uh, physical anthropologist, one of the top physical anthropologists in the country who's dealt with old skeletal materials. And then her assistant, Samantha Cox, who now has her PhD as well, um, who was an archeologist as well as a physical anthropologist. And so we did the dig by the books. Uh, we'd already found enough contextual evidence for the men. For example, the oldest example of Irish nationalism in North America is the Aaron Grubb Rob pipe bowl we found at Duffy's Cut. 1832 has got the flag of 1798 and the Wolf Tone Rebellion. That's the Aaron Garbra flag and a lot of other important old railroad artifacts. But the finding of the bodies, it took the ground penetrating radar. And we got that in March of 2009. I can't even I, it's hard to describe because we're, we're historians, but we're doing archaeology under the supervision of archaeologists. But to find a, a set of remains is a very moving thing. It's hard to explain for me, it was it was the teeth. I mean, it was just like, I don't know why, but it was just seeing the, the, the mouth with the teeth in it, you know, kind of shook everybody up. There's no question about it. 
this guy was the victim of violence. Janet Mon said he had a time of death blow, paramortem blow, which is distinct from a pre-mortem blow, something that you got hit in the head with and the healed, or something that happened after death where there's a vine growing through, and some of these guys did have vines growing through. But she was able to determine that this guy died of uh, physical violence instead of cholera. And once that happened, all other kinds of things clicked into place. You know, we had to get the coroner and the district attorney and the state police in and everything was done by the books. You know, we had to wait a whole month before we began uh, further excavation. And Tim did another radar survey that found um, under the tree, let me just see, there were four more skeletons under a huge tree, a tulip poplar that was about 120 feet tall and literally had bodies in its roots. I mean, it, it, it wasn't as old as the bodies were that at that time, they were talking about 170 years now, it's, you know, 180 years or whatever. The idea that, um, you know, that there were bodies that were nourishing this tree as it grew to its height, because there's organic material in there. And, and when you're excavating this stuff, it, it smells, it smells different than when you come upon a human body, even if it's almost 200 years old, it smells different than the soil around it. You look for this very dark discoloration, you see the outlines, for the first seven of the coffins, because the first sevens actually were buried in coffins with about a hundred nails in them to seal them, way more than you would have needed. That's because they were killed off site, we believe, brought back in and buried in the field by the men themselves who were still alive, unbeknownst to them, burying their comrades who had been murdered and not who had died from cholera. But the smell of the soil, again, something I can't describe, you got to be there to smell it. It smells different. And um, to see the violence done on them, because each of these bodies, progressively more and more horrific. There was a six foot tall skeleton. The average height of these guys was five, 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 six. There was a, a guy who was a really big guy, over six feet. He got an ax blow to the side of his head. Janet Mon said it was an underarm, right-handed blow. And then he was obviously on his knees because right over top of his head, boom, a bullet fired directly into the top of his skull to finish him off. You know, and there was even a woman who they killed. That was William E. Watson, founder of the Duffy's Cut Project on the Irish Baseball Podcast. Dr. Watson's organization has done so much for the legacy of these railroad workers, including giving some of the remains a proper burial. For Dr. William E. Watson, professor at Immaculata University, Emma Tiedemann, play-by-play broadcaster for the Portland Sea Dogs, and my colleague Jim Ward, I'm Rick Becker, and this has been episode 24 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for episode 25, where I will be joined by Pat O'Neill and Tom Kaufman, authors of the book, Ted Sullivan, Barnacle of Baseball, The Life of the Prolific League Founder, Scout, Manager, and Unrivaled Huckster. You will not want to miss this conversation. Thanks for listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org and connect with us on social media. And remember, there's no place like home.